You're listening to the RUV English podcast. To hear more and for all the news from Iceland in English, just head to ruv.is slash English. Welcome to the RUV English podcast. I'm Darren Adam. Every week, the foreign news desk here at RUV produces a radio program about foreign affairs and world events. The program is called Heimskvider and is broadcast on Raus Et on Saturday afternoons. Now here on the RUV English podcast service, we strive to bring not just Iceland, but RUV to the world in English. And many of the interviews that are recorded for Heimskvither happen in English. So from time to time here on the podcast, you'll have the chance to hear some of those interviews in full in English. Now, recently, Björn Malmqvist, one of the presenters on that show, former The Week in Iceland guest here on the podcast and Roof's Brussels-based correspondent, spoke to Rachel King, curator of the European Renaissance and the Waddiston Bequest at the British Museum in London. In 2019, a heart-shaped pendant was found in Warwickshire by metal detectorist Charlie Clark. Now, what he had discovered was a huge and spectacular early Tudor pendant and chain made in gold and enamel and bearing the initials and symbols of Henry VIII and his first wife Catherine of Aragon. Rachel King told Björn about the pendant and its incredible discovery. A pendant in the shape of a heart. It's about five centimetres tall by about five centimetres wide and that's attached to a collar or chain made of 75 individual links and suspending the heart from the collar is this wonderful enameled gold hand. And the whole object comprises more than 80 individual pieces which have been worked together. It's made of gold of the purity between 23 and 24 carats. So that's more than 95% purity. And it weighs just about 340 grams. This object was found in Warwickshire. It was brought to you at the British Museum uh, mm -hmm. shortly thereafter, I would gather. Can you recall your reaction when you first saw this? Absolutely. So the process is very clear. When somebody in Britain finds an object in the ground, and they believe it to be treasure, they've got 15 days to declare that object. So the finder of this heart pendant and collar first went to his local museum. And in the local museum, they do a sort of triage, almost like in the hospital. They take an initial look at the object and then it comes to the British Museum if necessary. So the object was found in December and by February it had come to the British Museum. But I didn't get the opportunity to see it immediately. I was told about it by telephone. And when the person described it to me on the telephone, it was beyond my dreams. I, I couldn't imagine what they were describing. And I kept on asking again, are you sure, could you describe this? Are you sure it was this? Because it sounded so un impossible and so unreal. Eventually, when it came into the museum, it wasn't just myself who saw it. There was a whole crowd of curators. Everybody was so excited. And it was a real afternoon of, of happiness and joy for all of us to have the opportunity to see something so wonderful. But almost immediately, that scholarly doubt set in. 
is this perhaps too good to be true? Let's not get too excited here. Let's step back a second and really, really, really take our time to get this right. And that's why there's been such a gap between it being declared and being announced to the public. Nearly three years, in fact. I guess an obvious question for a layman is, this this pendant is 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 thought to be what 500 years old how do you know how do how I, like how can you be sure uh, well, this is something we actually have to be quite sure about so for an object to be declared treasure in the united kingdom the object has to be more than um 300 years old and that means that my first job was to ascertain that it was made before 1719. The first question was not, when was it made? It was more, is it made before 1719? The motifs on the object relate the object to Henry VIII and his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. He married her in 1509 and their marriage was annulled in 1533. But anybody at any point in history could make an object with those motifs on it. So that certainly doesn't mean that the object is old. So really what we depended on was science. We were looking to see whether there was any evidence in the purity of the gold, in the enamel decoration, so the colored decoration on the object that would allow it to be linked to a specific time or in, in an ideal world to a specific year. So what we did was we looked at the gold, we ascertained it was a very high purity. There are changing gold standards throughout history. So that was saying to us, this looks like it's commensurate with medieval, late medieval and early modern pieces. We looked at the enamels, and in the enamel mixtures, there were no chemicals that are more recent discoveries. For example, one on the periodic table is arranged by date of finding. So if you have green enamel on an object and you find chromium, this would be a sign that that enamel was made in the 19th century. We use shorthand methods like this. And we were able to ascertain that the mixtures used for the enamels would be correct when compared with other objects from the late medieval period. And even more helpfully, we were able to ascertain that one of the enamels in particular, the black enamel, uses a recipe type, which changes after 1530. So we knew that we were looking for something, and we knew we were looking at something which was probably made before 1530. And so I could go on at length about this, but essentially the phrase is narrowing down we were coming closer and closer and closer to an early date, a date that actually looked like it matched the reign of Henry VIII and his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. And once we had the scientific information in place, that was our bedrock and we could start to work away from that again. It also meant that people were more comfortable that they weren't dealing with a fake and that people were happier to share their opinions because before that, it was a little bit too hot to handle. I can imagine that people are reluctant to stake their reputation 
on on an and assertion. I'm reluctant to also I'm reluctant to also give you a very precise answer because as soon as everybody knows exactly the clues that we follow, then these clues are also a, a way of producing fakes and forgeries in the future. So we are reasonably sure that this was made sometimes. Well, assuming it was made after they married, so it was made sometime between mm -hmm. 1509 and, and, and before they got divorced or annulled or, or something like That's that. That's right. The science says that we would be, it'd be good to say that, that there's no big problem with saying that. The other element is the, or are the motifs and the motifs on it, they're related to Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, that's for sure. But this is a very long marriage. We all know about Henry's many, many wives, but in fact, the majority of his wives came in the last decade of his life. And he was married to Catherine for 25 years for the longest of all of them. So where in the 25 years could this object, where and when in the 25 years could the object have been made? And the motifs do also give us clues in that. So in particular, the front of this heart-shaped pendant is decorated with an entwined rose and pomegranate motif. They are two trees growing together. It's symbolic of their marriage and union. But they don't simply grow together. They spring from the same branch. And this is a motif which really only begins to be used when they have their first child. Their first child is born in early 1511 and sadly doesn't live for very long. But thereafter, they've produced their first heir. So you have not just the intertwining of their family dynasties, but the fact that you have a child, you have the production of a new lineage. And then the, on the um, hand clasp, we were able also to date this because the craftsman has used another source for inspiration. And he's using the front page of a, a book so in 1515, a publisher called Johannes Froben, who's working in, um, he's working in Basel, he starts to produce books for Erasmus of Rotterdam. And Erasmus of Rotterdam had recently been in England. And he has an artist in Basel design his new front page for him. And the front page shows a hand in exactly the same form as we see on our pendant. So we can say not just that the first motif says something around 1511, we can say that the second motif is the hand clasp, and that couldn't have been produced before 1515. So we're getting closer and closer. And then we started to look for this particular text, which is on the heart. It says the words, or the word toujours, which is a French word, always. We actually think it might be a franglais word, a mashup of tous and the English word yours, so meaning all yours. And we know that at some point in Henry's own lyric, he's, he writes poetry to his wife, he writes songs, but also at his court, there starts to be a fashion for punning motifs and punning mottos. That's also at the end of the 1520s. And these punning motifs and mottos they tend to be part of courtly entertainments. So we started to investigate things that are happening at court. Henry liked to splash the cash. So his, his own father had been very um, frugal and Henry inherited a lot of money. He inherited when he was only 18 and like any 18 year old uh, 
he liked to party. He spent lots and lots of money on having immense parties, weeks of entertainments. And there are very good records for all of that. And it tells us in particular for one in 15, around 1520, 1521, somebody's tidying up after one of these parties. And they say, I'm going to get rid of all of these things that we've had made for horses. And the horses have been decorated with embroideries and the embroideries show hands holding hearts and the hearts have H and K entwined on them and the rose and the pomegranate entwined on them. So it looks like we are actually able to find an event, a week long event in the 1520s where people were decorated with these motifs. Their horses were decorated with these motifs, their banners, houses, lots of things at the court in costume. So we'd like to suggest that probably or possibly that this object was made in the context of this celebration. And it's nice that you're talking to me today, which is Shrove Tuesday, because it would have been exactly this week in 1520. And because it was the Shrove Tide celebrations in advance of the Lent period for Easter. We're putting it all together as a great big mystery and jigsaw puzzle, but it started out not knowing anything. And then glad, gradually we had clue after clue after clue that allows us to put together this hypothesis. And in essence, it's an incredibly romantic piece, isn't it? Well, it's often true that we think about hearts as an expression of love of one person for another. But in this period, it might also be the expression of fidelity of a courtier for its king or a noble to another noble. In this particular case, it's the object is not a locket, a locket being a heart shaped or another shape of container that might have contained, for example, a piece of hair or another keepsake of somebody. In this case, we're really just looking at a pendant in the shape of a heart. And at this moment in time, we don't know exactly for whom it was made. In the context of these tournaments, which happened around Shrovetide, we think it might really just have been a part of the costume. The, con the tournaments were arranged very, very speedily. The goldsmiths did lots and lots of work for everybody at court. At the end of the tournament, or celebrations, they collected everything back in and they melted it back down again and started again for the next tournament. And what this object has is a very blingy, perfect appearance. But when you have, as we do, microscopes and so on in the museum, you can start to see that it's actually very rapidly made. Elements of it are a little bit slapdash. There are things that could have been better and we would like to suggest that it might really have just been made for this party that was one week long. The intention probably would have been to melt it down again. And that could have been because somebody had it as a costume or maybe it was a prize at this party. And we don't really know how it came to be in Warwickshire or how it came to be lost. I guess we were incredibly lucky that it got uh, lost before it was melted down again. Yeah, that's true enough. That's true. And we're very lucky to find it now, because probably a 100 years ago, where an object like this to have been found, 
people would have been very, very interested by it. But at the same time, they might have thought, mm, there are some elements about this, they're not very good. It looks wonderful to you and me, but really to an expert eye, it has lots of problems, lots of imperfections. And a hundred years ago, curators might have said, oh, it's not the top, we won't keep this. And it might have been sold or lost subsequently. But today, museum curators are so interested in making and what making can tell us about the past that we really treasure this as a document. You take care of, or your department takes care of 40,000 objects. So no, just me. <laughs> oh, just you. Yeah. The whole department takes care of a lot more than that. <laughs> okay, in the context of the collection that you take care of, yeah. describe to me the significance of, of this one. What's really important about this object is what the object tells us itself. We have many, many objects in the British Museum, and the museum was founded in the 1750s. Many of those objects were collected by important people or have important stories attached to them because of the lives that they have had. This object is almost virgin. It hasn't had a life. It's been in the ground for, well, for goodness knows how long. We can't determine that through science. This is like seeing something for the first time. And there are all of the hierarchies of history, the preconceptions, particular stories have yet to become associated with it. It's a unique opportunity for us to read the object first and then read the books second. Whereas so often in history, you read the books and then you find the objects that seem to illustrate what you're interested in talking about. And that's a real, real privilege to read something from A to Z for the first time. And in my case, the finder saw this one day, he brought it in. Nobody else had really seen it between him and me and some of my colleagues around me. And it's been a really intense couple of years, a really intense conversation between me and this object. And because it was such a great secret, it really was just between, in, between me and the object for such a long time. I couldn't even tell my husband about it. And you have held this in your hands. What's the feeling? I've held like? it in my glove hands, yeah. In the, so this, the finder was the last person to hold it in his uncovered hands. Yeah. So you have held it in your gloved hands many times, yeah. I, would, I would assume. Yeah. Describe to me the feeling of touching history. What's really impressive about this object is the weight. When you have it in your hands, you immediately feel them drop slightly. It's hard not to project what or project for yourself what, what wearing this object might feel like, what it would possibly feel like to wear more than 300 grams of, of gold. Then there's the other element is particularly the chain. The chain is actually very well made in comparison to the heart. And that might be because craftspeople were making chains as standard. That was a very normal thing. Perhaps the chain already existed and then for whatever reason, the heart was made. 
And the chain is incredibly precisely made. You can hardly see any solder there, which of course each and every individual link, and there are 75 of them, had to be soldered. It's made in a very particular form whereby one link passes through four links. And that makes a very specific design. It's the design that you see if you come to Buckingham Palace and you see the guards at the front wearing the bearskin helmets. They have a very broad chin strap. And this is a curb chain. It's a very inflexible type of chain. And you can see, feel that when you have the object in your hands as well. But what does it feel like to hold history? Well, funnily enough, in a museum, you hold history so often that that spark sometimes isn't there, but it is there when you hold something for the very first time that nobody else has held. That is unique. And that doesn't come up every day for me. I'm very, very privileged. And at some point also, you sometimes forget to be excited about the wonderful things that you work with. But you certainly were in this in this instance. Excited and frightened in equal measure because I also knew that this would be a big task ahead of me. And there's a terrible fear also, if I get this wrong, this will be stuck to me and my name forever. <laughs> so We work as a team, which is one of the wonderful things about it. So much as I couldn't tell anybody outside of the museum I was able to rely on the scientists and the conservators here to discuss the object with me. But you had to uh, you had to keep this a secret for what two years before you could even tell your husband. Yeah, we've we've been able to keep this a secret for quite some time in the museum, and that was obviously a challenge for all of the different stakeholders in the project. It's wonderful now to have the opportunity to talk about it. There's so much new information coming our way. There are scholars from all sides asking us questions. There are members of the public with theories and ideas coming to us. There are people who are interested in contemporary culture. For example, people who are interested in hip hop music and are interested in chains, which is a big part of the fashion, are interested in this. Because the chain that you see on this object, much as it might be 500 years old, is still a chain which is used and known to, to people who follow hip hop culture. So it's been a big surprise then. Those are not people I would necessarily have consulted had I had the opportunity to consult with. But I'm so glad to hear from them now and to hear their ideas. When is this going to be on display or is it already on um, display? Well, I'm very it, sad to say that it's not on display. Okay, but will it be so sometime? It will be, but it's unpredictable. Rachel King, curator of the European Renaissance and the Waddeston Bequest at the British Museum in London, talking to my colleague Björn Malmquist as part of Heimskvither, which you can hear on Saturday afternoons here on Ruv on Raus Etz. My name's Darren Adam. Thank you for listening to the Ruv English podcast. You can get in touch with us anytime by email english at ruv.is. Also, find us now on Twitter at ruvenglish.com.
you are listening to the Roof English Podcast. To hear more and for all the news from Iceland in English, just head to ruv.is English.